The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. So welcome back now to our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. Uh, This morning, arriving at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and a sermon we've entitled Dead to Sin, Alive to God, uh, with reference to the general theme of this section of Scripture found in verse 11. Now, endeavoring upon a new chapter in our study of this letter, many are tempted to see in verse 6 a change of subject, a new section in the book altogether. And having begun with a treatise concerning justification by faith in chapters 3 through 5, many would think that Paul now moves along to consider another subject, the subject of our sanctification in chapters 6 through 8. But we've been asserting all along that there's a different structure to the letter and a different point to the arguments that Paul is making. We certainly see an argument for justification by faith in chapters 3 through 5, and we certainly see uh, instruction that is helpful to us in our sanctification uh, from chapters 6 through 8. I don't think that's the point that Paul is making here in this large section of text. This is where it's so important, so helpful to be able to trace the entirety of Paul's train of thought as we work through these chapters together. What we have is not a new section in chapter 6. We have the continuation of an argument that Paul has already started. Now, it's helpful as you and I consider these texts, this scripture, that we understand the flow of the argument. Okay, so I want to go through that with you. I want you to be able to commit that to your heart and mind. Understand where Paul has been and where Paul is going. Really, really important to understand the main point of what Paul is teaching in these chapters. Now, our indication of that, that Paul is not starting a new section but continuing the same, is in the opening question of the chapter, verse 1. Well, what shall we say then? (laughs) What shall we say about what exactly? What shall we say about all that we've just covered in chapter 5? Right? You see, there's a a direct connection between the thoughts of chapter 6 and the arguments of chapter 5. And what we're not, not doing is beginning a new section. Paul is simply continuing his thought. Right? He's simply continuing his thought. So what is it then? Let's remind ourselves. What is the point that Paul is laboring to make? Here we are in the flow of Paul's argument, and the flow of Paul's argument brings us now to the question that he asks in chapter 6, verse 1. Now think with me. Paul opened the substance of this letter with a two-and-a-half-chapter exposition of man's plight under sin. That's where we began all those many sermons ago, right? The wrath of God presently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men suppress that truth in their unrighteousness. Men bury that truth under a veneer of false and hypocritical religion. But men are self-righteous lawbreakers. Chapter 3, verse 10, we come to the conclusion. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. We know as a result of Paul's argument, don't we, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, every back talker, 
(laughs) will have his mouth shut and all the world became guilty before God. That's why, brothers and sisters, it is a fool's wish to imagine that justification or a right standing in the sight of God, it's a fool's wish to think that that could be attained through our own good works or through any works of the law. Now, why is that? Because we have no good works. Paul's just made the case, there is none who does good, no, not one. However, by the grace and mercy of God, right? At the same time that his wrath is being revealed against the unrighteousness of men according to his law, his own righteousness is being revealed for the justification of men apart from the law. At the same time, right? That revelation comes to us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God provides for our justification as a free gift of his grace through the person and work of his only begotten son. And that justification entirely apart from any works, otherwise we would perish, okay? Entirely apart from any works, any works of the law, it is a justification then by faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Now Paul then spends chapter four proving that point, proving that justification and salvation and all the promises of God are given through faith. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Amen? Amen. Now here's the point then that Paul begins to develop in chapter five. And it's a very important point that flows from a biblical understanding of justification by faith. If you can embrace and hold to and lock down in your heart and mind a biblical understanding of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, then all of these benefits come flooding into your heart as blessed promises of God associated with that privileged status. And it's a point that's going to blow your mind if you lay hold of it, okay? It's a point that will increase your joy. It's a point that will strengthen your hope. I'm talking about the point that Paul is making from chapters, really from chapters 3 through 8, in particular 5 through 8 now. It's a point that will bolster your joy, build your faith, Deepen your gratitude, intensify your love, fuel and fire and inflame your devotion. And this is why. It's because our justification or our status as righteous in the sight of God, because that justification is by faith alone, entirely by the grace of God, having nothing to do with any of our own works, then your possession. Your possession of all of the exceeding riches of his grace, your present possession of the internal, the eternal inheritance of the saints in the light is absolutely, unquestionably, undeniably, inexorably certain and sure. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are transferred, you are conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. And having been justified by faith now, 
all, I can't even get my hands around it. It's like all of the riches, all of the blessings, all of the benefits associated with his glorious salvation come flooding down to you as a gift of God's grace secured through the person and work of the Son as a result of having been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And all of that, because it is justification by faith alone, is absolutely, unquestionably, undeniably yours for sure. It is certain. It is secure. What we're talking about is assurance of salvation, the security of the believer. And that security, that assurance, whether you have a sensed experience of it or not, it is sure to you, it is certain to you, the moment, the moment that you put saving faith in Jesus Christ, the moment that you turn from your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ, all of those blessings, all that he has secured, all that he has done for us, all that he has won for us at the cross is applied to us through that blessed status. Chapter five, verse one, that's where it begins. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom? Through Jesus Christ, we also have access by faith into this grace, this justifying grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And that's the argument, the argument of chapter 5, chapters 5 through 8. It's the argument that Paul begins in chapter 5 and now continues in chapter 6, that all of it is sure, all of it is certain, all of it is as ours. Now let that sink in for a moment, Right? That's something that we should spend our lives meditating on, right? Spending our lives meditating on. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? That's part and parcel with faith, brothers and sisters. We receive those things by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ for who he is and what he's done. Chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. Temporal tribulations won't threaten that security. Temporal tribulations only strengthen our character and build our hope. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Our sin is not going to separate us from Christ. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we were enemies when he reconciled us, much more shall we be saved through his life now that we are reconciled friends. Right? Chapter 5, verse 12 and following. You were dead in union with Adam, his sin imputed to you. Now you are alive in union with Jesus Christ, his righteousness imputed to you. All of your sin forgiven. He is your righteousness. And the Son of God will never be turned away. Amen? Your eternal destiny rests on your relationship to one of those two men. You will perish in union with Adam, in your sin, or live eternally in union with Christ. Chapter 5, verse 15. If you are in union with Christ, will death separate you from the love of God? If death is certain to those who are in union with Adam, then much more eternal life is certain to those who are in union with Jesus Christ. And remember, all of this is by faith. All of this is through faith in Jesus, right? Chapter 5, verse 16. Will my own sin separate me from the love of God in Christ? Will my own personal sin separate me? Judgment may have resulted from the one sin of Adam, but much more the blood of Christ and the free gift of Christ's own righteousness 
will cleanse all of our guilty stains, forgives all of our sins, and gives us a perfect righteous standing in the courtroom of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 17. Death may reign through Adam, but it no longer reigns over us. Much more believers now reign in eternal life through Jesus Christ because of grace. Chapter 5, verse 20. Sin may certainly abound. Sin may abound, but wherever sin seems to abound, grace for the believer comes in like a whelming flood and superabounds, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul comes to the conclusion then, this entire train of thought that he's going to continue to build upon now, he comes to the conclusion at the end of chapter 8, what are we going to say about these things? Listen, what shall we say about these things? If God is for you, then who can be against you? Who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give you all things? And now that we are justified on the basis of faith alone, who or what is going to separate us from the love of God? From the love of Jesus Christ who died for us, who or what will separate you? Tribulation? (laughs) We've already shown that to be false. Distress? Sin? Death? Paul concludes, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Paul's argument. Praise God. Glory. Hallelujah. All right. Chapter 6 is simply continuing the wondrous, the astounding blessedness of the man or woman, boy or girl, who's been justified in the sight of God on the basis of their faith alone in Christ alone. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. I think this is helpful. Paul is asserting that our justification is, guarantees our final redemption in the fullest sense of the word. If a man is justified by faith, he can be happy about his ultimate salvation. If you are justified, you can be assured that you are going to be sanctified and glorified. Therefore, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Your justification, brother, sister, is on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. Put your faith and trust. Turn, you turn from your sin. Trust him. If you're trusting him for your salvation, you're not trusting in your works. You have none. You're not trusting in your own righteousness. You have none. You're not trusting in anything else. Your religiosity, external forms of religion. You know how often you've been to church? You're not trusting in any of that. You're trusting in Christ alone. And God says, you can be forgiven of your sins. You're forgiven of your sins through faith. And all of that is yours. So brother, sister, listen. Nothing, nothing is going to come between you and the guaranteed end of your salvation. What an amazing thought. If you live many, many years on this planet or not so many, nothing, nothing will come between you and the guaranteed end of your salvation. Tribulations, difficulties, adversity, nothing. Nothing will come between you and the guaranteed, certain, sure, promised end of your salvation. Everything that you see 
that could possibly come between you and eternal life. In the arguments that Paul has been laying out, everything that you see that could possibly become that could possibly come between you and eternity only serves to increase the certainty of it. Think about that for a moment. Can anything separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? You've been justified. Can anything separate you? No. Nothing. Nothing will come between you and the guaranteed end of your salvation. Anything that you might think that could possibly come between you and the guaranteed end of your salvation, which is glorification and eternal life, anything that you could think of only serves to increase the certainty of glorification, the certainty of eternal life. We think about tribulation. No, tribulation just sanctifies me more, builds my hope, increases character, strengthens perseverance. It only serves to help me. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? Moreover, Romans chapter 8, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Unbreakable chain. Unbreakable chain. We are no longer under the condemnation of the law. We're no longer under the reign of death. We are under the power and dominion of the reign of grace. Eternal life is ours in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's point. All of that's straight out of your Bibles, right? I'm not selling you a bill of goods, am I? You know, I didn't come and write that stuff in your Bible. All of that's straight out of your Bibles. We're not smart enough to come up with that on our own. No one is. This is God's wisdom. It's why these, these, these fools who attempt to discredit the inspiration of the Bible as some centuries-old telephone game are, they don't know their Bibles, right? They don't know their Bibles. This is not man's wisdom. This is God's wisdom. Now, if all of that is true, if all of that is true, then does it matter how we live? Does it matter how we live? Paul appears to have set aside the law of God in his argument. Appears. Won't this kind of salvation, this justification by faith alone, won't it encourage people to sin? Won't it encourage lawlessness? Well, people are just going to live how they want to live if this has been guaranteed to them on the basis of faith alone. It's going to encourage lawlessness. Furthermore, not only will it encourage lawlessness, but the law itself has become useless. What's the law for if it has no implication for us? Oh, these are critically important questions. These are questions that have been asked over centuries. They continue to be asked today. They're critically important questions. They would have been exceedingly important to Jewish Christians in the church at Rome because Judaism was very much wrapped around the law. So on the path into chapter 8, Paul determines to address these questions in chapters 6 and 7. He's going to address these questions in chapters 6 and 7. So let's go to the text now and begin to put it together, Paul's argument, as it continues now in chapter 6. If when sin abounds, then grace abounds all the more, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you see the issue? You see the connection, right? If grace simply abounds when I sin, 
then why wouldn't I continue in sin that I might know more and more grace of God? Right? That his grace, the outpouring of his grace glorifies God. Why wouldn't I continue to sin so that the, the abounding grace of God would magnify him? In Paul's mind, the thought is absurd. Right? The, the Paul, it's absurd. Dr. Murray says that Paul recoils in abhorrence at the thought. Certainly not, verse 2, God forbid How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, we're going to unpack those verses today. Paul's concern now at this point in the letter is that the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone does not encourage a life of sin in the one who has embraced salvation through the gospel. This reality does not encourage sin. Verse 3, or do you not know? That as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, our text can be outlined according to three simple headings. We see a question in verse 1. We're given the answer in verse 2. And then Paul begins his explanation in verses 3 and 4. Question, answer, and explanation. That's an explanation that will continue down to verse 10. Okay? Now first, consider with me the question of verse 1. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? What shall we say in response to the doctrine of free grace which has been espoused in chapters 3, 4, and 5. What shall we say to a salvation that is freely given by God without any regard to anything that a sinner does or has done? What shall we say to a salvation that is simply given on the basis of faith alone? You simply believe. What shall we say? You can see how this question is a culmination of all that Paul has been building up to our teaching about salvation up to this point. This is an inevitable question that Paul was going to have to deal with. It's been said that if you preach the true gospel of grace, you're occasionally going to get accusations like this. Because for, for many, it's just, it seems too good to be true. Right? It seems too good to be true. Now first, we know the Jews of Paul's day would have certainly raised the question. They were traipsing around Asia, following after Paul, battering Paul with the law. Okay, They certainly would have asked this question. We know that Roman Catholics at the time of the Reformation leveled this accusation. If you preach justification by faith, you're going to encourage sin. You're simply going to encourage lawlessness. Cults and sects of all flavors of all time since then have all leveled that accusation against the true gospel ever since. A doctrine of justification that doesn't require anything from the sinner? Are you kidding me? They would say that that is absurd. A doctrine of justification that allows for a wicked sinner to be declared righteous? When that wicked sinner has done nothing to earn that declaration, you've got to be out of your mind. You're just promoting sin. You're promoting more and more lawlessness. You can't teach that. The whole church is going to be given over to sin, given over to lawlessness, right? So we know the Jews of Paul Day, certainly the Roman Catholics of our own, other cults and sects would have raised that question. Second, second, professing Christians would also raise the question. Professing Christians often subjectively 
or even objectively raise the very same question. They somehow think that God's free grace in justifying them, despite a lifetime of sin, frees them from any obligation to obey the moral law of God. See what the question is or what the issue is, right? They somehow think that a gospel of free grace justifying them despite their sin on the basis of faith alone frees them from any obligation to obey the moral law of God. They're no longer under law. They're under grace, you see? Some years ago, that very notion was at the heart of a, a controversy, even in reform circles, eventually was called the hyper-grace movement. I don't know if many of you remember that. Uh, people like Tully and Chavidian or Elise Fitzpatrick, they were at the center of that controversy, espousing heresy. Rather than acknowledging God's grace at work in the heart of man to transform him and God's grace empowering him to overcome sin, teaching us to deny ungodly lusts, as Paul says to Titus, right? Grace simply covers all sin. Grace simply covers it. The gospel leaves us hopelessly bound to sin, but praise God that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. If you tell people they will be transformed by a work of the Holy Spirit, you're leading them into despair when they aren't, right? Hyper grace, if you will. Salvation is a get-out-of-hell-free card. Live however you want to, because you can't. You don't have the power to overcome anything anyway, right? Most of these professing Christians wouldn't argue against the hope of life transformation. They would hope that a person would change, but they would certainly argue against the certainty of life, life transformation. There's no guarantee at all that people are going to change. In fact, most, a vast majority of people don't. And if they try, they're going to be given to performancism. You're going to wear them out, rub their consciences raw, calling them to change and turn from sin. The result is professing Christians who have neither a form of godliness nor its power. You see, God promises that with the new covenant, there's going to be life transformation. Think about with me, think with me about God's own description of the new covenant. We get that in Ezekiel 36. Listen, he will sanctify his great name when he is hallowed in you before the eyes of the nations. Listen to what he says. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and cleanse you from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. God says, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. God says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Sounds like God is going to affect change. <laughs> That's in keeping with the new covenant. That's a promise of God. There are many professing Christians, many professing Christians who either subjectively believe as evidenced by a life of sin or objectively believe as evidenced in their very words that that simply doesn't happen. That salvation frees them from any obligation to walk in his statutes, or to keep his judgments and do them, right? In direct contravention to the new covenant, when in fact, when in fact, genuine salvation actually frees them from their bondage to sin. 
Genuine salvation actually indwells them with God's spirit. Genuine salvation actually frees them to obey the moral law of God in pursuit of righteousness. It doesn't simply free them from any obligation to the moral law. It frees them from their bondage to sin so that they may obey the moral law of God. Frees them to pursue righteousness for which they hunger and thirst. The genuine believer hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Salvation, the grace of God that has appeared to all men in the gospel, that grace of God teaching them to deny ungodly lusts, that grace of God empowers them to pursue righteousness, that righteousness for which they hunger and thirst. To the degree that you may cohabitate with a particular sin, listen for a moment, to the degree that you as a genuine Christian do not go to great lengths to cut off or to pluck out, to the degree that you acknowledge your sin, you see your sin, and you do not make a concerted effort, a zealous, diligent effort to pursue righteousness and to mortify those ungodly lusts, is the degree to which you act or even believe as they do. You see? That question that is raised, certainly a question that would have been raised by Jews or Roman Catholics, has been raised by cults throughout the centuries, certainly raised by false professing Christians who believe in antinomianism, lawlessness, easy believism. But it's also, brothers and sisters, also can be found in the corners of our own heart if we're not careful. To the degree that you entertain that sin and somehow you believe that the grace of God is simply going to cover it and you cohabitate with that sin without battling against it, without seeking to mortify it, is to the degree that you agree with their theology, right? Agree with their philosophy. Be killing sin, Owen says, or sin will be killing you. Galatians chapter five, verse 13, listen. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You've been set free. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're saved to fulfill the law. Do not use the freedom that you've been given in Christ the freedom that you've been given from the penalty of sin, the freedom that you've been given from the power of sin, do not use that new freedom as an excuse to indulge your flesh, right? To allow the flesh to simply continue to get what sinful flesh wants to get, to do as it pleases, right? To fulfill its lusts. You are free, but Peter says, don't use that liberty as a cloak or as a cover for vice, for sin. You've been freed to be slaves of God. You've been freed so that you can be slaves of righteousness, right? You've been freed to pursue righteousness. Verse one, what shall we say then? What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We have our clear answer, don't we? Absolutely not. Certainly not. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Those deceived by hyper-grace thinking, or those deceived by antinomianism, those deceived by the carnal Christian heresy or easy believism, you know, 
get saved. That's what's important. You know, if you walk that aisle, you say that prayer, that's what's important. You're saved. Now, you should try to live a better life. But if you don't, you remember that date. Write it in your Bible. Don't forget. If you doubt, it's because Satan is making you doubt. Don't doubt. Go back to that date. Remember the date. You're living like the devil over here. Don't doubt your salvation over here. You see what a, that's out of the pit of hell, right? If you're like me, you grew up hearing that. No, (laughs) nope. Those deceived by that thinking, in some way or another, they are espousing that it actually glorifies God that they continue in sin. And if you sit around those churches long enough, you'll hear that kind of talk. It's not gonna come out as overtly as that, but it's there, listen between the lines, so to speak. Why is that? How is that possible? Because it magnifies his grace, magnifies his grace. And he is more glorified in our salvation when he saves sinners like that. Continuing a life of sin actually makes his grace all the more glorious. No. (laughs) What makes grace glorious is not only forgiveness. What makes grace glorious is its life-transforming power. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to save you in your sins. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save you from your sins. And part of the glory of his grace is its life-transforming power. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Are you kidding? Certainly not. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now with the question... Paul is addressing the notion of genuine believers permanently abiding in uninterrupted uninterrupted sin. Paul is addressing the concept of genuine believers permanently living in unhindered sin. He's not referring here, make this clear with me now, he's not referring to someone engaged in a battle with sin that sometimes loses. Okay? He's not referring to our inward remaining corruption that continues to plague our flesh. It's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about Romans 7. He's not talking about that other principle at work in our members that is warring with the principle of holiness at work in our hearts and minds. He's not talking about someone who's embattled over sin, that embattled with that principle that sometimes takes us captive to a principle of sin that we find in our flesh, in our members, that's chapter 7, verse 23. All genuine believers sin. All genuine believers sin. Contrary to a lot of Methodism, there is no sinless perfection this side of eternity. Only one has been sinlessly perfect this side of eternity, okay? All believers sin. John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. (laughs) Pretty clear, okay? However, however... Although Paul is not speaking of that one engaged in a battle, in a battle that he sometimes loses, the genuine believer is no longer in slavery to sin. Verse 6. The genuine believer is no longer a slave, a lackey to sin. Simply doing sins, bidding without a fight, taking it lying down. Sin, verse 12 Sin no longer reigns in the mortal body of a genuine believer such that he is powerless against it. The genuine believer is not powerless against sin such that he must obey it in its lusts. Now, brothers and sisters, if you can remember back to when you were unconverted, would you say, wouldn't you say that you were a lackey to sin? Most of the time a lackey to sin because you were entirely unconcerned about it. 
most of your life. You're not thinking about that. You're just powerless against it, obeying it in its lust. Now, having been justified by faith and dwelt by God's Spirit, you don't have to. <laughs> when sin comes, right, temptation comes and plods and pokes at you to do its bidding, you don't have to. <laughs> the power of sin has been broken. There is a marked and characteristic difference. That's what we're talking about here, right? A marked and characteristic difference between the genuine Christian, the one who express, expresses godly or Godward sorrow over sin, the one who despises his sin, longs to be free from it, even though sin may be pleasurable for a time. If you had to choose, you'd say, no, <laughs> I don't want it, Right? The one who despises his sin, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, the one who battles against sin with diligence and zeal, the one who won't take it lying down. There's a distinct and marked characteristic difference between that genuine Christian and the false professing hypocritical Christian who may express worldly sorrow over sin the sorrow of a slavish fear or worldly shame, rather than motivated by a love for Jesus Christ, they make or simply allow, consistently allow for the indulgence of their flesh, even though they know it's sin. There's really no ongoing battle against sin. They're rather indifferent when it comes to any pursuit, true pursuit of righteousness or holiness. They simply aren't pursuing it with zeal. There's a distinct difference between those two, the genuine Christian and this false professing Christian. Paul's talking about the false professing Christian, the notion that someone can be justified by faith and continue to live in sin as an uninterrupted, unhindered pattern in their life, right? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Literally, it must not be. It must not be. The thought of a genuine Christian actively living in continued uninterrupted sin is absolutely revolting to the Apostle Paul. It's blasphemous. It's blasphemous. Paul would remind the Corinthians that they were united to Christ. Paul would say this, listen, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now think about this with me. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You've been united to Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? Certainly not. It must not be. It must not be. We are those, brothers and sisters, we are those who by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ have died to sin. Have died to sin. How could we possibly live any longer in it? How is it possible? The we in verse 2, look there with me. The we in verse 2 would refer to genuine Christians. We are characterized by the fact, fact that we have died to sin. How shall we, genuine Christians, who have died to sin, how is it possible that we could live any longer in it? It's not. God forbid. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Listen to Paul there, to the church at Corinth again. For the love of Christ compels us, Christ's love for us compels us, because we judge thus. That if one died for all, if Christ died for all of us, then all of us died in him. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, 
In other words, should live no longer in sin. Should live no longer for the indulgence of their flesh. Should live no longer in sin and rebellion, but rather live for him who died for them and rose again. We should live our lives for Jesus Christ. How is it then that we, who have been marked or characterized by our death to sin, how is it that we could continue then to live in an ongoing pattern of sin in our lives? It must not be. Paul speaks of Christians as having died to sin, having died. Not here as those dying to sin. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say we're dying to sin. It's that we have died to sin. We have died. The verb in the Greek is an aorist, active indicative. You guys considering those things? In an aorist, active indicative, it means that the action, being in the indicative, the action took place in the past, and that action, which took place in the past, has present, ongoing implications for the Christian, right? This act took place in the past and has present ongoing implications. We have died to sin. Having died to sin, that reality has implications for our present in an ongoing way. Christians are those who have died to sin in the past. So what does Paul mean by that expression? What does Paul mean? Verse three, verse three. When we were baptized into Christ, when we were united to him, we were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into his death. We're going to talk about that more next week. Verse 5, so Paul then says, we have been united to Christ in the likeness of his death. Do you see? United to Christ in the likeness of his death. Verse 6, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. So what does Paul mean by this expression, having died to sin? We died to sin when we were united to him. We died to sin when we were baptized into his death. We died to sin when our old man was crucified. Do you see? Now think with me for a minute, and I want us to be clear about this point. Dr. Martin, very helpful on this. We are baptized into his death. We died to sin when we were united to him. Our old man was crucified with him. All of those assertions made from the context of our text, okay? From our very context. So how is it How is it that we have died to sin by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ? How is it by virtue of union with him, how is it that we have now died to sin? How do we understand this? Look at verse 10. Because, Paul says, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise then, verse 11, You also, you who are united to Christ through faith, you also reckon yourselves then to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to talk about that more soon. So when Christ died on the cross, think with me, when Christ died on the cross, he died in the place of, he died on behalf of, he died for the benefit of ruined sinners, and he died because of our sin. Okay, now there are several texts that help us with that. Chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Died in their place. Died on behalf of. Died for the benefit of the ungodly. 
Chapter five, verse eight, two, two verses down. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place, on our behalf, for our benefit. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us in our place, for our benefit, okay? First Corinthians chapter 15, verse three, listen. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He died because of our sins, right? In our place, on our behalf, for our benefit, and because of our sin. Now think with me. Christ took upon himself the penalty for our sin, the penalty that you and I rightly deserved. He died in our place, on our behalf, for our benefit, and because of our sin, so that our sins are forgiven because our sins have been punished in him. But there's more that took place at the cross than simply Christ paying our penalty. Paul says the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. In other words, Jesus Christ in his death on the cross also broke the power of sin. He broke the power of sin. Or he destroyed, as it were, the dominion of sin. His death to sin at that one moment on the cross was our death to sin when we were united to him. In the sense that sin, just like sin no longer has dominion over him, because he died to sin once for all, breaking the power or breaking the dominion of sin, in that sense, sin no longer has dominion over those who are united to Christ by faith. No longer has dominion over us either. So that according to chapter 5, verse 21, just as sin reigned in death because of Adam, now grace reigns to eternal life because of Jesus Christ. The power or the dominion of sin has been broken. You got to think about that. It's not easy to gel that with the gray matter between the ears, right? We've got to think. Paul is not referring here exclusively now to the penalty of our sin. He's not even exclusively referring to the punishment that's due our sin. Paul is referring to the power of sin or the dominion that sin exercises over the life of the sinner through death, right? Sin is a power that exercises dominion. Sin's dominion is exercised even through or to the death of the sinner, for the death that he died, Paul says he died to sin. He died to sin, not died for sin. It's interesting, right? He died not for sin. He died to sin once for all. But the life he, that he lives, he lives to God. He not only took our sins upon himself on the cross, but Christ at the cross, think with me, Christ also subjected himself to sin's dominion, sin exercising its dominion through death. So when Christ goes to the cross, he's not only paying the penalty for our sins, but Christ is submitting himself to the dominion that sin has over us and that dominion that sin exercises over us in death, Christ is submitting himself to that. He's saying, I'm going to die for them. I'm going to die for them and I'm going to die because of their sin, because of sin's dominion, okay? So that through the death of Jesus Christ, he might satisfy all of the law's demands concerning our sins. Then it would be, it would be through his resurrection from the dead that he would be raised in victory over sin and death. 
His resurrection from the dead is Christ's victory over sin and death. In being raised from the dead, Christ breaks the power of sin and death. Do you see? Breaks the power of the grave. But also, breaking the power of sin and death over himself, right? his own resurrection, a testimony and evidence that he has broken the power of sin, broken the dominion of death over himself, but also breaking the dominion of sin, breaking the dominion of death over all of us who are united to him in faith. The penalty of sin has been paid by Jesus Christ and the dominion of sin has been broken by Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is referring to there in verse 10. Such that when Paul describes the Christian as dead to sin, he speaks of one who is free. You are dead to sin, meaning that you are free from the dominion of sin. You are free from the power of sin. Sin can no longer exercise. Sin can no longer exercise a dominion over you. Death can no longer exercise dominion over you. Why? Because you are destined to be raised in Christ. Just as he is resurrected, you will be raised in him. Death has no longer any dominion over you. Sin no longer has any dominion over you. Why? Because Christ broke that power at the cross. He speaks of us who are free, brothers and sisters. You've been freed from the dominion of sin. You've been freed from its power. You've been freed from its mastery. You've been freed from its slavery. What shall we say then? Verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Are you kidding me? Who would espouse such a foolish, absurd idea? Absolutely not. It must not be. How shall we who have died to sin, no longer under its dominion, no longer under its power, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer? It's an absurdity, right? What a great salvation we've been delivered to. What an amazing salvation. It's just sometimes you, 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 I know we share that. You think about it and it's just overwhelming. Like what God has given to us in Christ Jesus, the depths the depths of the blessings, the richness of the blessings and the benefits that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Absolutely amazing. Is there some indication in your life that sin's dominion has been broken? Is there any indication have you turned from sin and put your faith in Christ and now living for Jesus Christ? Is there any indication that the power or dominion of sin has been broken? Are you battling? Are you embattled? Or are you just indifferent? Yeah. Do you have victory? Do you see times when you pray and the Lord answers your prayer? You think on his word and you Take heed according to his word. You hide his word in your heart and you have victory. Or are you living a day-by-day -day life indifferent 
to sin? Are you continuing in sin? Continuing a life that is not characterized by a battle against sin? Are you living a life that is not characterized by the ongoing mortification of your sins? Are you living a life that gives no evidence of a true hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Are you living a life that bears no evidence that you are in an earnest pursuit of holiness? If that's the case, then you are living a life that is inconsistent with what the Bible describes as the Christian life. And now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But brother or sister, in speaking to you from this text, don't entertain any antinomian spirit in your Christian life when it comes to sin. Don't entertain any kind of easy, cheap grace believism when it comes to your attitude in regard to sin. Kindle in your heart and mind a holy hatred for it and give it no quarter. It is revolting to us to think that we who have been buried with Christ in the likeness of his death to sin, having been forgiven of all of our sin, could continue to live one more minute in it. Right? And revolting to us because we do. Right? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We can say together, we praise and thank our God through Jesus Christ our Lord that he will. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for the depths of the riches of the salvation to which we have been delivered. Lord, you have astonishingly an amazing uh, technicolor splendor. Lord, you have made provision for our sin in the most glorious ways multifaceted ways through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, through his perfect life, sinless death, sinless sacrifice on our behalf, in our place for our benefit because of sin and for our sins. We love you and we thank you and we revel with joy in all that has been given to us. And praise you, Lord, that knowing these things, having put faith in Christ, it is assured to us. It is secure. And most assuredly, as we've been called, we were justified. Most assuredly, as justified, we were sanctified. And most certainly, without doubt, we who are justified will be glorified. We praise you and thank you for the hope that we have in you. May it be to your glory. Uh, for your everlasting praise and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.